I'm just going to read through the names of uh, people who joined the call. Uh, and when I state your name, if you can please state your title and represent uh, who you represent so that the BMJ and the Cochrane Library are aware of all the attendees. Um, you may decline the state and who you represent as well if you choose. Uh, following the introductions, I'll just ask that you, um, that you please mute your lines until the Q&A portion. Um, so to start really quick, uh, we have uh, Ed Silverman. Can you just state uh, your title and who you represent? I'm a writer at the Wall Street Journal. Great. And then uh, we have uh, Michelle Healy. Hi, Michelle Healy with USA Today. Great. And is there uh, anyone else that just joined? Hi, uh, this Angela Zim from Bloomberg News. Hi, Ann. Hi, I'm Deborah Cox with the uh, Boston Globe. Hi, Deborah. All right, thank you, everybody. Um, today's call is going to be led by Dr. Fiona Godley, the Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. She's also joined by uh, Dr. Peter Joshi, the Assistant Professor of Pharmaceutical Health Services and Research at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and is also a member of the Cochrane Neuraminidase Inhibitors Review Team. We have Dr. Elizabeth Loader, the Clinical Epidemiology Editor at the BMJ and Associate Professor of Neurology at the Harvard Medical School. We have David Tobey, Editor-in-Chief of the Cochrane Library. Uh, we have Dr. Carl Hennigan, the Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at University of Oxford and a member of the Cochrane Neuraminidase Inhibitors Review Team. And without further ado, uh, Dr. Godley and everyone else, the floor is yours. John, many thanks indeed. So yes, I'm Fiona Godley, I'm Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and I'm also delighted um, that almost by chance we have with us also Dr. Ben Goldacre, who is um, a, a GP, uh, a doctor, a, a researcher at the... Uh, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and author of Bad Pharma and also one of the founders or the founder of the All Trials campaign so we can have a, a more general talk about what this case means for uh, access to data generally on clinical trials. But let me briefly give you uh, the background to this rather extraordinary story. We're talking about a, a, a drug which as you know has been uh, purchased uh, extensively around the world, stockpiled indeed, uh, in response to concerns about a pandemic back in 2009. Uh, and really, since that um, pandemic, an attempt by the Crocken Review Group, who were commissioned by the UK government to get to uh, a, a sound evidence base for whether this drug was effective um, and safe, trying to find the data uh, that would give them that evidence base, discovering that the data were all held by the manufacturer, that the uh, only published trials, or in fact all the trials, were funded by the manufacturer. There have been no independent trials of the drug, uh, that the trials themselves are of quite poor quality. And over the four years that it's taken them to get access to the drug, learning a great deal that is extremely worrying about the nature of the system by which we evaluate and regulate drugs. Uh, uh, so as Peter Doshi will be able to tell us, we have a situation where the regulators have reached around the world very different opinions of the effectiveness of safety in the of the drug, uh, where the effectiveness has been overplayed and the harms underplayed, uh, which really must bring into question the decision to stockpile the drug and the continuing guidance from WHO to do so. The story also gives us a unflattering insight into the system itself, and I think what we will be discussing during the call will be, uh, to some extent, who is to blame or is this a multi-system failure which has led to this extremely expensive mistake uh, and possibly one that has been harmful also to public health. 
So, John, if that's enough of an introduction, um, I, I shall pass over then to Carl Hennigan, who can give us the uh, summary of what he and his colleagues found when they looked at the full evidence from the Roche CSRs. Yeah, thanks, Fee. Uh, I mean, the first thing is to say that we have, for the first time, received the full clinical study reports for the assessment of this drug. That means we had 20 trials of oseltamivir involving 9,623 participants and 26 zanamivir trials, 14,628 participants. And from that, we've been able to analyze four features that you would want to know about this treatment. The four features that re rely on one, complications, two, its ability in a pandemic for prevention of transmission, third, it's its harmful effects, and four, its symptomatic effects. So let's just take them in order. The first is complications. Two of the most important complications are pneumonia, which is what's been in the past said this is drug reduces your pneumonia and hospitalization. In effect, for pneumonia, we are saying there is no clear effectiveness. The only place we found a small effect, a 1% absolute risk difference, was in what we're calling self-reported unverified pneumonia. That is in a position where somebody has come in and reported to an investigator, I think I've had pneumonia. When you use more detailed definitions and diagnostic criteria, then there's no effect on pneumonia. When you look at the two clinical trials of actinamivir that used an X-ray confirmation, there was no effect on pneumonia. So them important aspects, pneumonia, we are not seeing the effect we would say would be show this is a drug that reduces that complication. As well, in hospitalization, there we saw no effect upon an important outcome, hospitalization. Second, then, if you take the prevention of transmission, we are showing that in a pandemic situation, the fact that there's no effect on asymptomatics, that the small effect that you'll see in symptoms shows that there's no evidence to suggest and say that this drug should be used for a pandemic. So once you take them two factors out of the way, you're left with a small symptom effect and you would expect to not see any harms. And what we're seeing for the drug Olseltamivir is some common harms, which include nausea and vomiting, but actually some more worrying harms and they include psychiatric adverse events, renal adverse events, and some metabolic events that lead to hypoglycemia. Thank you very much, Carl. I wonder if I could just turn now to Peter Doshi, one of the other authors of the review. Um, Peter, I don't know what other aspects you want to bring out, but I, for my money, the, the difference in the regulatory decisions you uncovered in your first article in the BMJ around this in 2009 is of interest, but you may want to mention other things as well. Sure, sure. This, this might be an area, actually, that's uh, better for Q&A, but to briefly give you an outline of the regulatory uh, background, these uh, drugs were approved in uh, 1999 uh, by FDA, so they're quite old drugs, and didn't really become blockbusters until the mid-2000s when they were stockpiled by governments around the world. And during the H1N1 swine flu outbreak, we started to look at what governments had said about these drugs in terms of their assumptions that were underpinning those uh, stockpiling decisions. And what you see there is a very interesting example in the United States where the assumption that was underlying the stockpiling decision was that this drug would reduce complications such as pneumonia, hospitalizations, and even death. That was called a critical assumption in the U.S. Official Pandemic Preparedness Planning Document. 
that was supported by CDC. The interesting thing here, though, is that neither the HHS document nor the CDC point to anything else in terms of the evidence for that claim other than a Roche-authored journal article that was written in 2003 called the Kaiser Analysis. If one compares those claims that they were basing the stockpiling off to what was going on at FDA, you'll find that FDA, in the, the FDA-approved Tamiflu Oseltamivir labeling, actually had the opposite conclusion. And I'll actually have the quote here that I was going to read for you. The, the label since the year 2000 and still today, FDA-approved label says, Tamiflu has not been shown to prevent such complications. So what we have is this an extraordinary disagreement between the FDA and the CDC that's never been brought to light in such a way that two major public health agencies are forced to get to the bottom of the evidence base. Now, what we know or can assume, I think, with a good amount of, of certainty is that FDA has vetted this evidence base to a far greater uh, level of detail than has CDC. CDC, again, only cited a Roche-authored journal article in support of its claims. So I hope that at least gives us something to discuss, because now we're in a position in our uh, uh, review where we're publishing not based on uh, a review of the literature, the scientific literature, but rather a review of the entire full set of clinical study reports, the very documents that the regulators uh, receive. Uh, FDA, we assume but do not know, uh, has access to all these documents. We've, we've had access to these documents. To give you a sense, it's about, I think, 150,000-plus uh, pages in total. So that's what our new uh, Cochrane systematic review is based on. Thanks very much, Peter. Uh, David Tovey, as editor-in-chief of the Cochrane Library, um, you deal, obviously, <laughs> with a great deal of systematic reviews. Have you ever dealt with one quite as um, unusual and extensive as this? Thanks, Fee. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a unique for Cochrane, there's no question. This has been an extraordinary cooperation between an international group of researchers, the BMJ and the Cochrane Collaboration. Cochrane Collaboration is itself an international organization that publishes and maintains systematic reviews. But as everybody has said, those systematic reviews are uh, based on published reports. And the particularly unique aspect of this review was that uh, the clinical study report, rather than the published report, was used as the sort of mine for the evidence. I think, so that's unique for Cochrane. I think it's thrown up some interesting and important challenges. And um, I think there are We'll all learn from the experience in, in a number of different ways, I think. Thank you very much, David. Elizabeth, you've been the BMJ editor most closely involved in actually the deciding on the publication of the BMJ articles, which are, uh, are summary versions, if you like, of the, of the very extensive Cochrane Review. Uh, might you just give the um, press a sense of the process involved in peer-reviewing the articles and um, you know, the challenges that, that you and the statisticians have faced? Yes, well, the BMJ has a rigorous peer review process in any case, but these two papers were a bit different than papers we've generally reviewed, including other systematic reviews and meta-analyses, because they were based on clinical study reports and not published versions of trials. 
So as the authors have mentioned in the papers themselves, they were faced with a number of difficulties. Some of the ways of conducting systematic reviews and meta-analyses, for example, are based heavily on the assumption that people will be combining information from published reports of clinical trials and not wading through clinical study reviews. So for example, there's no generally um, accepted way of judging the quality of clinical study reviews, study reports, as opposed to trials and things like that. So it made it necessary, I think, for peer reviewers to look at the papers in a whole different way. And certainly from a statistical point of view and an editorial point of view, it was a lot um, more work and I would say a, a lot more thought went into uh, reviewing and and making recommendations about these papers. The other challenge, of course, was that we were attempting to coordinate publication with the Cochrane Review, so it involved uh, it involved communication not just between the editors at the BMJ and the statisticians at the BMJ and the authors, but also with the people involved at Cochrane. So it was truly a, a group process. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. And it's worth mentioning to the um, to the press that we have. Uh, attempted to earn this review, the the the, the title of the most uh, open and transparent systematic review ever. To that end, the Cochrane authors uh, declined any uh, invitations to sign confidentiality agreements during the process of their analysis, in order that they would be able to share the information and their analyses with everyone else, and they could have those scrutinised by others. Uh, and uh, that has allowed us uh, to or them to publish the full clinical study reports, which will be available through uh, the database, the data repository Dryad, and you can link to that from the Cochrane Review and the BMJ papers. And in addition, we're publishing the entire peer review process from the Cochrane Library and the BMJ uh, on, on bmj.com. So again, you can review that. Um, I'm just going to turn now to Ben Goldacre. Ben, we, um, we have learnt from the, this whole four-year saga uh, that the all these studies were industry funded, funded by Roche. That none of them were compared with an active uh, alternative, so they're all against placebo. That the quality of the studies themselves was poor. Uh, that the um, none of the studies were done during a pandemic, and that uh, the information provided to regulators was patchy and rather idiosyncratic. There may well have been pressure, political pressure on. Uh, regulators to make certain decisions and on WHO influenced by key opinion leaders paid by industry uh, to push them towards certain decisions. I, I present this in very brief form. Uh, it's, a, it's a story that's perhaps too familiar across the whole of uh, the drug uh, evaluation and regulatory system. And I wonder if you could give, perhaps give us some general comments about what does the Tamiflu saga tell us and, and what needs to happen in order that this uh, isn't the case in future. Well, I think what's interesting about Tamiflu is that it is probably not an isolated example. It's an accident of history, really, and I think Roche are quite unfortunate that the people doing this particular systematic review happen to be as dogged as this Cochrane review team, because actually very commonly people doing this kind of research come across difficulty getting access to data and they give up. And what we've seen here is what happens if they don't give up. I think it also exemplifies all of the flaws in the systems that we have for practicing evidence-based medicine. And the key among those is that it is still routine and entirely legal for industry researchers and also academic researchers to withhold the results of clinical trials. So that's why at the alltrials.net campaign we ask for 
all trials to be registered, which is something that people have talked about for a long time and it's never been fully delivered and crucially never been fully audited. We ask for the summary results of trials to be made available on clinicaltrials.gov or in an academic journal. Actually, academic journals can be very misleading places to report trials because they allow people to get away with various different statistical crimes like switching primary outcomes and so on. And finally, we ask for the clinical study report to be made available where one has been created. And this Tamiflu re report it, it exemplifies the importance of that because it turns out that there are actually quite commonly methodological shortcomings in the design of clinical trials, which mean that they're no longer fair tests of which treatment is best. And they can be glossed over in the brief reports in academic journal articles and can only be seen when you have access to the clinical study report. Now, in the case of this review, we can see that, for example, trials where it was described as double-blind, actually the pills looked different. Trials where it was said that the, that the placebo was a dummy placebo with no ingredients actually had an active ingredient. Trials where we're told that what was measured was cases of pneumonia, but in actual fact it was self-reported pneumonia with no clear diagnostic algorithm, no chest x-ray confirmation and so on. So we can see the importance of clinical study reports just from this, but we also know from research done by ICWIG, who are the German government cost-effectiveness agency, that there is a huge amount of important information on methods and results of clinical trials that is removed from academic journal articles, not covered in academic journal articles, but which can be found in clinical study reports. So that's why it's important that we have access to CSRs. And then very, very finally, it shows the importance of access to, to results and methods of clinical trials from the past. Because all of the pledges and promises that we've seen from Pharma, the industry body, and FPA, their European partners, all of the changes in legislation that have been proposed in Europe and recently passed only get us access to new clinical trials starting from now. And that means they all share one enormous loophole, which is that they miss out all of the trials relevant to clinical practice today. Because today we use drugs that came on the market and were researched 2, 5, 10, 20 and 30 years ago. And Tamiflu is obviously a very clear example of that. So it shows the importance of getting access to the full methods and results of all the trials in the past. And that's what we don't have now. But it's clear that we need that to practice medicine safely, effectively and cost effectively. Thank you very much, Ben Goldacre. Um, John, I think that's me done. Over, over to you. Great, thank you. Um, so to move over to, to the Q&A, uh, just a reminder, we're going to scroll through everyone's names, starting from the top, the first person who joined, and kind of go through. And we'll cycle through as many times as possible. Uh, although I do think a few people joined during the call, so if you can just, uh, don't mind, if you joined mid-call, if you can just say your name and uh, who you represent. Michael Smith, mid-page today. Great. So we'll just start from the top. Uh, Ed Silverman. Hi, thanks. I'm just wondering, whoever wants to answer this, um, who's more to blame then for the the, uh, the the bottom line takeaway issue here? Is it been the regulators, uh, which regulator more than other, or is it the drug makers? Thanks very much, Ed. It's Fiona Godley here. I'll pass that first of all to Carl Hannigan and then Peter Doshi, if I may. Carl. Yeah. I, 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 how are you going to identify a single uh person or a single organization that's going to be very difficult and a lot of journalists seem to want to do that the key for me is that right now it can still happen because our regulatory systems allow it in america and europe together they're not talking to each other and saying look how do we go forward so the key now is to start to change the way we're doing this and yes there are lots of people to blame here but actually regulation will allow this to happen again unless we start to change the way we do this. Thanks, Carl. Peter. 
Uh, I would say we have to blame, I mean, I don't want to pin it on one group as well. I, I think this is a multi-system failure as, as we write. Um, but I think that public health officials have a uh, responsibility to the public, first and foremost. And when public health institutions, prominent ones like FDA and CDC, are fundamentally at odds about the effects the, the basic assumptions that have gone into billion-dollar stockpiling decisions. I think that they need to reconcile those differences and figure out, get to the bottom of the evidence base by evaluating all the evidence. I think that it is intolerable that we have a situation where there are fundamental uncertainties about serious harms caused by these drugs that could be caused by these drugs. I think that is... Uh, uh, completely unacceptable uh, for regulators to tolerate and for public health uh, bodies that uh, have advocated stockpiling. Thanks. And the drug makers? Well, I'll answer that, um, Ed, briefly. I, th I think we have to say that, um, that the drug makers have a, an irreducible conflict of interest when it comes to presenting the data from their studies. The fact that they perform the studies um, themselves, often um, retaining a, a high degree of uh, control over how the studies are done and certainly c maintaining holding the data uh, apparently commercially in confidence they would they would like to say I think does put um, a great deal of responsibility on them they're, they're not incentivized to uh, create a clear picture of the effectiveness and safety of their drugs at the moment uh, w we have repeatedly been told and told ourselves that they have done nothing illegal in behaving as they have done uh, but it has not certainly been in the public interest can I just come in on a point, and I think to elaborate on Peter's, uh, I think we thought, thought it just seems, it's almost incredible that when we look at it, we end up with comparing the FDA and the, and the European Medicines Agency a lot and seeing this, this you know, one of them says it, it can't reduce complications and the other one says it can reduce complications. And it just seems incredulous that we're in this position. Major public health bodies who have a regulatory oversight can't actually agree with each other. And... and and, and no wonder there's confusion everywhere. So at some point, we're going to have to get people to start to talk to each other and come up with a consistent message. Okay, thank you. Fee, I was just wondering, it's David here, David Toby. I just wonder if I could add something yes. that was implied Go by ahead. what you said, which is about that all these trials were conducted by the sponsors. And I think if we look upstream, you know, we know that sponsor-conducted trials come with a, a fairly predictable bias. And you know, the fact that there were no, there were no independent studies of these really important agents was, uh, is also, I think, a failing system in a way. I would absolutely agree, David, and, and I think one of the, um, the, I think that's something that the, the public may be much less aware of than they should be, that, that the vast majority of trials, the, 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 the overwhelming um, proportion of evidence, the evidence base for drugs is funded and performed by industry or industry paid experts. And I think this is a, a bias that we know from studies uh, continues to give an over-optimistic view of medicines and, and is a, a systematic problem that has to be addressed. Can I come in on that point? I think it's a very good point, David. I mean, it's, we seem to not understand that pharmaceutical manufacturer-funded studies overestimate treatment effects by about 30%. So when you take that into account, you would start to worry about lots of pharmaceutical-only funded trials. The second is we, we learned from the Medtronic Yoda group work that about 80% of the adverse effects are not reported in journal publications. 
So we, we understand this principle. It's just not translating into then saying our regulators and our people like NICE or whoever is in the US like Medicaid going, hmm, do you know what? We need our own clinical trial here funded to understand what's going on. And nor does the regulator request that, that a pivot, one of the pivotal trials is independent. So mm. it's possible and, and, in fact, normal for drugs to be licensed and um, put onto the market based on entirely industry-funded data. Okay, we'll move one for, forward. Uh, Deborah Kotz? Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my question. An interesting briefing. I'm just wondering, can you elaborate a little more? I was looking at the paper on um, the side effects. Um, that you saw what the rate of them was, and you talked about the psychiatric side effects. It seemed like in the paper these were not statistically significant. Um, did you find that there were statistically significant psychiatric side effects in these both the trials? Um, I'm going to pass that to Peter Doshi. Okay, so the uh, psychiatric side effects are where these are coming up as statistically significant are in the Tamiflu prophylaxis trials. So it's, it's not uh, Relenza, it's not Tamiflu treatment trials. The prophylaxis trials are where Tamiflu is taken for a, uh, quite a bit longer than in treatment. Treatment is typically five days, whereas uh, prophylaxis is six weeks. can be shorter, but in the, tri the majority of trials were six weeks, and one of them was seven days for prophylaxis. And as far as... Uh, the types of events that come in these, this category of uh, psychiatric adverse events, these are things like uh, confusion and depression. What about suicidality? That was something that was brought up in, in news reports many years ago. Uh, right, it, with reference to a different class of drugs. Or are you talking about with, with regard to Tamiflu and what happened in Japan? These same That's right, yeah. children? Uh, so, yes. so there were no cases. Uh, there, were, there was, in terms of what was classed as suicide ideation, there was one event in the Tamiflu arm across the trials, and zero events in placebo. Mm -hmm. Can I just come in and let let, let me let me I, I'll add to what Peter said? So, for Relenza, the the drug is inhaled, so it's inhaled into the airways, and most of it is deposited in the airways in the lungs. And because it's not actually absorbed, only about 15% of it is absorbed, it actually has a lower profile in terms of its systemic effects across the body. So the major adverse effect you see with uh, Relenza is you see bronchospasm. The issue then is when you look at the Tamiflu and the Oseltamivir, how do you think of this? And I, I think if you're going to use this drug widespread, what you're talking is if you gave it about a million people, you're probably talking 200,000 of them will tell you they've got nausea and vomiting, and that's significant. About 150,000 would report headaches, and then about 10,000 in a million would would say they've got psychiatric adverse events. 6,000 would say they had some renal problems, and about 4,000 would say they'd have a hyperglycemia, which is a metabolic event. So I think when you're giving this to a widespread population, you can first see that a lot of people are going to stop taking this drug. But actually, you need at least 80% to take it for eight weeks for it to be a prophylactic agent. And it has to work in asymptomatic, which it doesn't. The issue then with renal events and psychiatric events and metabolic events is what you should always be concerned of, if you see these in healthy people, that that's a signal that's worth investigating and following up on.
And I think that's the important issue, because if you start to see this and use the drug in people at higher risks, you're certainly going to get more and more harmful effects. So what should have been happening is people should have been all over this if they'd have had this evidence, trying to better understand these adverse events. All right, we have time for one just quick question. Michael Smith? Yeah, sorry, I had, it, I had it on mute. I had it on mute. Oh, Someone okay. mentioned independent studies. Um, I wonder if there is now, or if you perceive um, in the community a, a desire to have more of these independent studies. There are, uh, there are some that are, are done in... Um, in, in, re, in, in sort of other areas like HIV and whatnot that are conducted by, uh, by uh, NAID, but I don't know of any in drugs. And I'm wondering if, if there's a, should, should, the, should the regulatory agencies insist on such a trial before they approve uh, drugs? Let me ask Elizabeth Loder to answer that as a, as a clinical trialist in, in, uh, in neurology. Elizabeth, your views on that, especially in America. Well, I think for many drugs that would be a step forward. We know that there are problems when sponsors and their selected investigators um, look into drugs, and I think particularly for drugs that may have very widespread public health or other exposures, it would be wise to have people who have no vested interests in the medicine or um, in the company that, that creates the product to, to perform trials. I think that might generally be a good idea with drugs across the board, but certainly where there's a compelling public health interest, I think that would be a very good place to start. Is there any sense, are you hearing, are you feeling in, in the medical community and in, in, in the industry any, in, and in regulatory agencies any desire to move in that direction? I'll, I'll bring in Ben Goldegger here. Oh, sorry, Elizabeth, you say your answer, then hear from Ben. Carry on. Well, I was just going to say that to set up a system that's able to do that would be a, a very big undertaking, but certainly I would hope that we're moving in that direction. Ben, um, the, the question was about um, is there a, a public appetite or public demand almost for more, public, more independent, non-industry-funded trials? Speaking, obviously, from Britain, but perhaps more internationally as well. I think it's an interesting suggestion. I mean, I, there are two separate issues here. One is can we get access to the full methods and results of all the trials that have been conducted? And that's a really easily attainable goal. I mean, it's, it costs nothing. It's just a simple matter of propriety. And I think it is what people expect is, is what happens already if you speak to the public. And actually, in our recent experience of working with the Public Accounts Committee in the UK government, it's what policymakers assumed was the case. The question of whether we should have independently sponsored trials, I think, is a much more complicated and, and difficult one. Um, in particular, I think what we really need are well-designed trials which follow long-term real-world clinical outcomes and are robustly designed. Now if industry can't deliver those or if it can only deliver those by withholding the results selectively then I think that's a problem. I'm not sure that I personally have an objection to industry-sponsored research per se. I think you could add that one of the things is that's a bigger ask today but what we have shown is that the regulators could post the clinical study reports for new drugs, but also for the old drugs that they've had under their wing for the last 15, 20 years. And we're seeing that happen at the European Medicines Agency. I think the US FDA could take a leap in that direction and lead some of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's absolutely key here is transparency on the trials that have been done on the medicines that we use today. And that requires that we have access to the full methods and results. That means clinical study reports. 
and there is no excuse for withholding those. And I think, you know, the public are astonished when you tell them that it is, it's not just um, legal, it's also commonplace for this information to be withheld. And I think that's a key message, uh, which is exactly what does the public think goes on? What does the public expect? And I think there's a, probably an enormous gap between the reality, uh, which, which, which actually for many of us in, in medical research, medical publishing and clinical practice, we too have assumed a much greater uh, security of the evidence base than is in fact the case. So this case of the Tamiflu saga just shows us again um, how, how, how little we can assume in terms of um, accountability, transparency and um, objectivity in the um, conclusions that are drawn from the, from the current system. So I think the public needs to be, it needs to be explained to the public exactly what has been going on and that's why the press is such a, a key, per, key group in this uh, exercise.